everybody. Welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Courtney. And I'm Patrick. And welcome to episode 43. 43? 43. 43. Okay. 43. I think that's the right number. We are creeping up on 50. 50. We're getting there. It's crazy. It's been almost a year. I know. It's absolutely crazy. And we finished our Kemper. Thank God. <laughs> It was good, though. I I enjoyed it. No more it. Kemper for a long time, please. We're not supposed to mention his name. I already, already blew it. Yeah, you weren't going to do that, but you did. I so did. I did. Yeah. Because we don't want to deal with him anymore. Hey, Pat, they had uh, some true crime news happen today. Let me see if I can open it. They found the identity of the boy in the box, the infamous boy in the box in Philadelphia. Never heard of it. Really? Yeah. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you have heard of it. And the little boy was identified as four-year-old Joseph Augustus Zarelli. Okay. So he finally has a name. That's absolutely crazy. We'll have to cover him one day. Okay. In other news, yes. you go to Netflix and put in 9875 in the search. It pulls up all your true crime documentaries. 9875. That's the code. It's a pat hack. <laughs> I'm good for the show. That's what that's the shit I'm good for. Yes. Thank Random you. Ass stuff like Netflix code to get you all the true crime docs. Thank you so much. I had to share it with the people. Hell yeah. Couldn't silo the information. Oh, and if you hear um we have a, a special guest today. If you hear uh snorting, oinking, and or that was my phone, sorry, and or farting, we uh have our bulldog. The farting might be Courtney. Shut up. <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> you <laughs> that's, that's a very good possibility i'm not gonna lie we have uh our bulldog wandering around and he's usually banned because he is so loud he's the most loud living creature ever i'm so used to it that i don't hear and when he's not doing that and he's sleeping he snores oh my gosh like really a loud. logging truck really loud that little dog sounds like a freaking logging truck it's hilarious <laughs> have a bulldog or have you ever been around them y'all know what we're saying you feel me <laughs> do you have anything else you want to share with the people before we get started no i got lots of notes here no this is going to be kind of like a mini case and it took on a life of its own as you go figure i know right so patrick we're in australia today we're down under i don't think we've had Good night, mate. i don't think we've done an australian Put another case. shrimp on the bobby okay i'm I'm going to apologize for that horrible accent. Well, I'm, I'm Especially anxious. since we have friends in Australia that listen to our podcast. I'm anxious to show off my Australian accent and say things like nar, nar, instead of no, nar. Nar. <laughs> nar. It's like a country British accent. That's how I do it. <laughs> Makes sense. Okay, guys. In April of 1978, William Thomas was out farming mushrooms off of Swamp Road in the township of Truro, Australia when he stumbled upon what he thought was a cow bone. Okay. Weird, but he went about his business collecting mushrooms and thought nothing more of it. I'm going to assume it's not a cow bone since it's on our podcast. Absolutely. Okay. It's never a mannequin or a cow bone. This was why I was a detective, <laughs> as a detective at one point. You did really good. I was, I was phenomenal. Legal eye over there. <laughs> nothing got past me. <laughs> William went home and mentioned it to his wife, who immediately was curious you know, because there was no nearby ranches, so why would a cow bone be say, out in the she barrens? She was looking at him like, you know there's no fucking cows around here, right? This is the barrens. Yeah. So so the next day, she... Thank you, Jackson. 
So the next day, the couple made their way back to Truro to check it out. After after about half an hour or so, they finally were able to locate the mystery bone. Now, William, being a little squeamish, didn't want to investigate. So his wife knelt down and yanked on the bone. And after she gave it a tug, a shoe popped up out of the ground. Odd. Cows don't wear shoes, as you know. Uh, Well, if it was your cow, it might have a shoe. Yes, but this was not my cow. Right, okay. (laughs) Inside the shoe, they discovered numerous smaller bones and a patch of skin along with what looked to be painted toenails. Oh, that's weird. Definitely not a cow. Immediately, the couple raced back to their home and called police who came out to investigate. The body was so badly decomposed that there was no way that they could determine a cause of death. However, to investigators, it seemed most likely that the deceased had gone hiking out in the barrens and it just not brought along enough water. Maybe not a seasoned hiker. She must have been young and inexperienced and therefore died of exposure to the heat and dehydration out in the elements. After some time, the victim was finally identified thanks to dental records And she was 18-year-old Veronica Knight. And she had now been missing for two years. Oh. Quite a while. Okay. There was a missing persons report filed on her that stated she had last been seen Christmas shopping just two days before Christmas. Is it likely that she would have gone Christmas shopping, then traveled out to the barrens of Truro to go hiking? Nope. (laughs) Unlikely, but the police just had nothing else to go on at the time. Little did the police know they had a prolific serial killing duo oh. on their hands. And Veronica Knight was just one of eight young victims. Okay. Today, I will be telling you the horrific true story of the Truro murders. Got it. James William Miller was born on February 2nd, 1940, into a very poor family that was already struggling to feed five other kids, so five kids other than James. Not a lot is known about his childhood, all in all, because later on, James absolutely refused to speak about it. That's how you know it's bad, when he refuses to even talk about it. Yeah. However, we do know that he was neglected and often ran away from home in search of food and better circumstances. As one would do. Mm -hmm. By the time that James was 11, his behavior in school became such an issue that he was shipped off to, I think I'm pronouncing this right, McGill, McGill Reformatory School for Protestant Boys in South Australia. Oh, fuck. And we all know (laughs) how I feel about these damn all-boys reformatory schools. In the 70s or 50s and 40s. Yeah, just in general. Charlie Manson attended one. So did Carl Panzram. That whole- Henry Lee Lucas. Prior to like the 1990s, it was just not a good place to be. Absolutely. It was all the troubled kids, right? Yeah, absolutely. They're all basically beaten and- Nothing good. Yeah, nothing good. Nothing good comes from them. And nothing good came from the McGill Reform School either. Not only did the school look like a prison from the outside, but it functioned like one on the inside. They they were reform schools. They were basically this one step from prison. You just hadn't been arrested for shit yet. Right. Or you had and you got away from like, you know, probation or whatever it was. The only lesson that the boys were taught was how to be obedient. And James didn't take to these lessons very well. The boys were disciplined very sternly let's be honest they were most likely beaten right and behind closed doors there was lots of sexual abuse going on 
However, James did have a few close relationship relation, relationships, plural, excuse me, with some of the other students at the reform school. And it was at that school that he discovered that he was in fact attracted to men. He was gay. So although he emerged from that school with absolutely zero formal education, he did feel that he at least found himself in a sense, I guess. Okay, I guess that's a silver lining. Yeah, it's about the only one in the story. Yeah, it's not really a silver lining. I was just when James left Magill, he traveled around southern Australia and worked as an itinerant laborer, so a traveling labor worker who's, I think, paid under the table so they don't have to pay taxes on it. Yeah. That's what he did for work. And he actually did okay with this job. Like, he paid his bills. However, that work is very seasonal. So to make ends meet in the off-seasons, James began to steal. Okay. At first, James stole small things, like a loaf of bread so that he could feed himself, Mm -hmm. you know? And um, then he graduated to stealing cars and selling the parts for money so that he could not just eat for a day, but eat for a week. Or he escalated. He escalated, yes. Which is what we always see. Now, don't let him fool you. He was not a good thief. He got caught a lot, like a lot. In (laughs) fact, over the course of 20 years, he was convicted 30 times for car theft, larceny, breaking and entering, purse snatching, and stealing. Now, this always takes me off on my random rant of, mm-hmm. at one point, at what point do we say, okay, we've arrested this fucking dude 20-something yeah. times for fucking car theft, mm-hmm. and do we just keep fucking doing it? We just yeah. keep letting him go. And it's interesting to note, not one of his crimes was violent in nature. In fact, it was said that he had an aversion to violence in general. He was just trying to get money to survive in a world that he felt had not treated him kindly, and it hadn't, you know? He still should have been in fucking prison for. Oh, for sure. He he just kept doing it. But in fact, every time he got out of prison, he would immediately get thrown right back in. And I think that that had a lot to do with the fact that his basic needs were being met in prison more so than they were on the outside. He had medical care in prison. He had a roof over his head. He had a place to sleep. He had food. Hot meals. I mean, it also falls under that that whole category and that whole theory of institutionalization, right? Yeah. He grew up in a reform school, which was basically a prison. Mm-hmm. So prison was nothing to him. And remember, James did not thrive in society because this was during a time that it was less accepting to be homosexual. Right. And, open. and he was very openly homosexual. So he had quite a bit of trouble finding and keeping a job. Well, yeah, to... to He's going to have trouble finding and keeping a job, one, because, you know, he's going to run into issues with that time period with homosexuality. He's also got a record of a mile long. Yeah. But he's institutionalized. Like, this dude was grew up in this basic, same, simple thing. And then on top of that, in prison, you can be gay. <laughs> like, yeah, you don't no, really have another option. And if people you, you know don't I mean? bat, bat an eye there. They're so like, I think he oh, could. Oh, you're gay? Okay. I feel like he could be himself there, maybe. I mean, everything he... Not would, saying he was a good guy. <laughs> no, but everything he needed was there. Right. And everything he knew in if, if some way, shape, or form was, you know, that structure was there. So, so he might be going back on purpose. Exactly. At the age of 34, James was serving a three-month stint at Yatala Prison. However, this term would be more significant than all of his prior terms because it was here that James would first encounter Christopher Robin Worrell. Okay. I'm assuming that's going to be his weird partner in crime story guy. 
Yeah. He's a, he's a human excrement is what he is. Okay. He, you know, I mean, he's in prison, so he's not exactly like the best guy. Now, whereas James wasn't a violent criminal, Christopher absolutely was. And we'll go ahead and call him Chris. Chris was only 20 years old. And so James was, what, 34? Chris was 20. He was just a kid. And in the prison system, Chris was considered a bad boy. You have to be pretty freaking bad to be considered a bad boy in the prison system. Well, yeah, most prison systems around the world kind of categorize their inmates, whether it's numbers or something else, like to the most violent or the most dangerous to like the ones that aren't going to cause you problems. So he mm-hmm. probably had one of those. He's violent and he's going to cause problems rankings. And he was. Absolutely, he was. Although most people would say he was very charming and handsome. And I, I think, you know, he was a handsome kid. He displayed, quote, psychopathic tendencies. And that is an understatement, to say the least. Okay. Major douche alert here, as you will soon see. But well, he's on our podcast, so he's not exactly a absolutely. fucking stellar human being. Yeah, he's not, you know, grade A, a grade not A human. Fucking bringing groceries to the elderly and fucking volunteering at the fucking local Y. But James was smitten with Chris as soon as he laid his eyes on him, and he began following Chris around that prison like a lost little puppy, despite the 14-year age difference. Why does this sound like Henry Lucas and Otis Tool? It does. It does remind me a lot of that. Yeah. It's just that whole one yeah. following the other way around like a little puppy. It just Yeah. One was super violent, one wasn't. Chris was serving time for the very violent rape of a young woman, and this was by far not his first offense. Oh. But because of Chris's good looks and charm, James just found it super hard to believe that Chris would have to rape anyone in order to have sex with them. Apparently, to many people, Chris was super good looking, and I have issues seeing past his offenses because I know about him. Yeah. So it's difficult for me to tell. So I'll post a picture and <laughs> let y'all be the judge. It's just stupid fucking logic, though. Like, oh, he's such a handsome man. I don't see why he would need to rape. Rape isn't a need. Rape is a want. Rape is not about sex. People oh. always say that rape is about sex. It's very much about control and domination. Right, but it's not a need. It's a want. Yeah. It's You don't need it. If he was doing it just for sex, he could probably go pick up a random girl at a bar. Well, Chris played into this. Chris played off of uh, James's infatuation with him, and he oh, yeah. assured James that he wasn't a rapist and that the girl who accused him was just really drunk, and she had just forgotten that she had a really good time and enjoyed herself. So the case would probably be thrown out soon. Uh-huh. I'm sure she did. I'm sure she had a great time. But little did James know, however, that, was sarcasm, that during Chris Whirl's trial— The judge stated, and I quote, you are a depraved and disgusting human being, end quote. So that'll give you an idea as to what Chris's character is like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he's only 20, guys. That's insane to me. So Chris was serving the maximum sentence for rape during that time, which astonishingly- Five years. Was four years. Yeah. Max sentence. But had James known about Chris's background, honestly, guys, I don't believe that it would have mattered. He was just so smitten with him, and he quickly slipped into a submissive role with the domineering 20-year-old. Yeah, he knew about his background. He just didn't want to believe it as a difference. Yep. So James, although older, he's very submissive to Chris. Chris is definitely that the leader of the pack yeah. personality. Now, to be clear, Chris Worrell was not gay. However, he absolutely relished in having James fawn after him. It fed his ego and his narcissism to have someone worship him to that degree. So he absolutely 
took advantage of James's affections. I'm not saying James is a good guy throughout this. No, no, this. no, 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 no. He's a piece of shit, too. No, However, he, he was very much taken advantage yeah, of. he was manipulated a lot. Yes. And he strung him along. The pair would spend every waking moment together behind bars. So when it came time for James to be released, James felt completely lost without his companion. Because mm. Chris is still in prison. So while on the outside, James went and stole 400 pairs of sunglasses and ran a small enterprise selling them in bars around Adelaide. Okay. Whether or not he did this in order to get himself thrown back in prison or not, it's debatable. However, I believe that was his goal, to get arrested and to be returned back to Utala where Chris was. And that's exactly what happened. James managed to secure himself an 18-month sentence back in Utala. After serving just nine months, James was released from prison. And as luck would have it, just nine months after that, Chris Worrell's sentence was commuted due to his, quote, exemplary behavior and prison overcrowding. Yeah, so it was prison overcrowding. Because he ain't exemplary. Well, they say exemplary (laughs) behavior because that's what they're going to put on the form. They're not going to go on your parole form. They're not going to say release due to overcrowding. They're going to say. He's also a good guy. They're going to say. Yeah, things are overcrowded, and he's a really good guy, so we can let him out. So now the two men were free to spend their time together on the outside. What what could go wrong, right? And Chris and James plan on getting an apartment together as soon as they saved up enough money. But for the time being, James was living with his sister and her family. Excuse me. And Chris, I believe, had his own small little crappy apartment at the time. How? He had it before he went in. He just... How did he pay rent for four years? Who knows? Okay. I don't know. Maybe he had a parent that paid or who knows? Maybe squatted. Yeah, maybe Hard he had to a say. that he stayed with or something. They did start working. To, James and Chris started working together for the Unley Council's roadwork gang. So their days were spent working side by side. Then their evenings were spent at bars or touring sex shops on Chris's behest. Chris loved to go and visit sex shops. See, Chris had very specific sexual tastes. He was into sadomasochism, domination, and bondage. And his personal fantasies revolved around rape and ultimately hurting women. Mm. Now, in the S&M community, (laughs) consent is at the forefront of their code. Yeah. Like, it has to be consensual. You have to consent to be all the tied up and, and, all, and beaten or whatever. However, or with Chris, he didn't get off on that. No, so he's a lack of consent because it's a control His thing. idea of a good time was to inflict fear and pain. So an unconsenting partner is, you know, his type, exactly. unfortunately. Exactly. So dutifully, James would tag along with Chris to the various sex shops in Adelaide, even though it wasn't his thing, you know? And remember... James is gay during a time that it wasn't exactly smiled upon to flaunt it. So he would have rather kept a low profile during this time, but he went with Chris because he loved him. Right. And also, I truly believe that during this specific period of time, Chris was almost grooming James in a way. I don't know. It's really strange, but he is grooming him, despite Chris being younger. Sounds like he's slowly introducing him to that world of Mm -hmm. non-consent and pain and fear infliction. I say that because Chris then escalated things. Now, remember, Chris is not homosexual, like we said. In fact, he's a straight-up womanizer. (laughs) 
But he began to take James home after touring these sex shops, and he would masturbate in front of James while the older man just sat and watched him. Like, he would taunt him and tease him. Eventually, Chris, quote, allowed James to perform fellatio on him. Oh. Oral sex. And I say this because he was absolutely taking advantage of James's feelings toward him. He wanted to reward. Every time James would do something, he would reward him in a way. Oh. And every time weird. James wouldn't do something, he would ice him out. And we're going to see this off and on. Okay. It's abusive. It's a toxic, abusive you relationship. Think? Yes. I'm just trying to I'm, I know that some of this is kind of like, why do we need to know this? But I really wanted to set the stage and- well, it really, it really, their dynamic. I was about to say, it really spread it's the important. light on their, on their dynamic and their relationship and how things work with those two. Right. So, James was excited that he was able to be sexually intimate with Chris in any capacity because he loved him. Yeah. But eventually, or, well, after that happened, because it happened once, according to James, um, But after it happened, Chris was like, okay, you need to chill out. We're no more than friends. Like, we're bros. So if you want to be with me, there's, you know, that's fine. We can hang out, but there's not going to be any more sex between us, you know? So. Yeah, you just had my pee-pee in your mouth, but we're just (laughs) bros, dude. What the fuck? Yeah. So he's, it's like, it's kind of like a reward system, like with a dog, like dog training. You know, like when we're teaching Coconut to sit and we, you know, give her a treat when she sits. It's crazy to me. That's how their relationship is. Um, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And then it's like, hey, this is not a regular thing, so don't get your hopes up. God. Well, James absolutely agreed to this because he was just enamored with Chris. So whatever it took to be in his life in whatever capacity, he was willing to do it, sadly. Pathetic. But it is pathetic. But we're going to see a very toxic relationship unfolding. Whatever Chris decides to do next, James is going to be on board with it. No questions asked, 100%, and mm-hmm. that's not good. No, not with this dude. Author Ryan Green would say of the, pair's, Ryan Green. <laughs> of the pair's relationship, quote, there's very little evidence that Miller took any pleasure in submitting to Worrell, but he was so desperate for any sort of relationship that he would do anything to be involved sexually with Chris, no matter how painful or degrading it was. And that, as usual, that sums it up to Mm -hmm. a T. He's so good with words. So Chris put James's loyalty to the test. He had James take him to a few gay bars around Adelaide where the pair would work together to pick up older wealthy looking men and bring them back to Chris's apartment with the promise of a good time. Then they would rob them and kick them out with the threat of outing them to the world. Yeah. yeah. And you have to remember this was the seventies. And these are prominent men. They're picking. Yes. Them. These and, are dudes that don't want their reputation. Well, tarnished. and a lot of these men were most likely married and they, they couldn't be outed in the community. That's what I'm saying. They, yeah. Either, either cause of their married or they're right. businessmen or they're, you know, shop owner. They couldn't the chance they, it. They so they keep their mouths exactly. shut. They couldn't be like, Hey, I'm gay. And I got yep. robbed for being gay. And they'd be like, exactly. They don't want anybody to know. So they're just going to shut the fuck up, move on. They probably lose a couple hundred bucks at most. Yeah, or whatever they had on them, ring, watch, whatever. The duo became so prolific at robbing unsuspecting men that they were eventually banned from every gay nightclub in Adelaide. Every single one. How many are in Adelaide? Because that's just not a big Back then? I can't imagine that many. It's not that big of a city. It's not? I don't think so. I mean, it's not like Sydney or Perth. Yeah, I'm not sure. 
But it didn't stop Chris from pushing the envelope. Chris loved two things, drinking and sex. So he was able to convince James to use his money that he had saved to buy a car so the pair could cruise around hunting for girls for Chris. So That's James had to buy a car hey, I need using to his own money. Since you love me and want to have sex with me, but we're not going to do that. We're going to go find girls for me to have sex with. Yeah. Okay. That's fucking not manipulative at all. And James, of course, did exactly that. And James, of course, did exactly that. He went out and bought a 1969 Valiant sedan. I've never heard of that. Must be a... It's, it's got to be an Australian thing. Got to be an Aussie thing. Things started off fairly low, fairly low-key, I guess you could say. <laughs> The pair would drive around and James would act as the gay best friend wingman, you know, and that would generally disarm a girl long enough for her to get into the car. It's, it's not a, a it's brilliant. stupid thing. It's like, brilliant. I'm, I'm telling you right you now. you have a brilliant. gay guy with you and you're going to go pick up girls, that's the best dude to send over there because they're so non-threatening that the girls open up. And it's comforting. Like, hey, here's I mean, my straight friend. He's, he thinks you're cute. Oh, he must be safe because he's got you and you're such a sweet gay man. Exactly, like, exactly. So then once they were in the car, Chris would charm the girl and James would pull over somewhere secluded, park, and he would get out and take a walk while Chris and the girl did their thing in the back seat. And we're going to see this repeatedly. Lovely. Uh, then James would eventually bring the girl back home unharmed. Do that over and over again. In the beginning, Chris Worrell's little romantic escapades only would happen once or twice a month. But then it became weekly. Hmm. Eventually, he would need this every single day yep. on a daily basis. And eventually after that, this regular vanilla consensual sex was just not enough that's that, that's that for Chris Worrell. That's that stereotype, not stereotype, but that is that very typical profile of all these psychopaths and these serial killers and these murderers is we see this every time, right? The escalation. Yeah. You see it with the escalation of the crimes. It starts with property. Then it moves to personal crimes. Then it moves to you know rape and murder. And then we see it like right here, like just like Bundy and all them. We'd do it like once every six months. Yeah. Then it'll be once every three months. Then we'll once a month. And that's not enough. We got to do even more and more depraved shit. So it's, it's fucking ridiculous. reason this case is so interesting is because James kind of gives us insight into the psychopathic mind from his point of view. He would say that Chris suffered from what James would call, quote, black moods. Good way to put it. I mean, he doesn't know how else to describe it. He's not a fucking psychologist. Chris would get headaches and then become almost blackout with rage and anger and until like the spell passed. So Chris was needing to feed that rage and that need for control. And he was escalating. And unfortunately the next girl to get into that sedan with Chris and James would not make it out alive. Figured. And that brings us to the night of the first murder. Okay. I'd like to start by saying that all of the details I'm sharing about the crimes are coming from James Miller's account. However, so this is, this is, he squealed the whole story. However, I personally feel, based on the evidence, that it is mostly accurate. I can't say that he is telling 110 well, percent everything the thing. is the we truth. We all know. We all know when there's like two people involved in something. There's three stories. Mm -hmm. There's Person A's story, there's person B's story, and then there's the truth, which lies somewhere in the middle. Right. Right. So even if somebody gives their full-on account, 99.9% .9 of the time, that's not 100% accurate. I think the only person we've really seen that with was the man that we don't want to talk about anymore. Yeah. 
That starts with a K. But because he went over it so many times with so Rhymes many Rhymes with flimper. He said it so many times, like it didn't change. Yeah. That, that's what it was. So just two days before Christmas, December 23rd, 1976, everyone was out and about doing last-minute errands and preparations for their holiday celebrations. Chris Worrell and James Miller were also out and about on King Street in Adelaide where they spotted 18-year-old Veronica Knight. Veronica she was the one that was from the beginning, right? Yes. Okay. Veronica had already had a rough life. Shortly after she was born, her mother passed away. Then she was taken from her alcoholic father and placed in the foster care system. Ugh. But later on at a church group, she met a couple named Peter and Jeanette Woods who became mentors and parental figures to Veronica in her later teenage years. And in fact, it was on this day that Veronica was doing some last-minute Christmas shopping before her upcoming trip to Melbourne to spend Christmas with the Woods family. Oh, okay. She had been shopping with a friend, and unfortunately, she had gotten separated from her shopping partner, and she was quite turned around. Once they lost... She was a little discombobulated. We'll and this is way. pre-cell phone and all that stuff. So and it was in, very crowded. If y'all and, were alive like we were when you didn't have cell phones, you got lost from your friends. Like, you, you couldn't find them. Yeah. There was no like, hey, where are you at? Or drop me a pin or yeah, <laughs> any of that shit. It was just like Marco Polo style. Not so lucky for her. Chris Miller approached her and offered her a ride home, and she accepted. James was driving. Chris was in the passenger side, and Veronica slid into the back seat. The trio drove off under the guise of the two men taking Veronica home. However, Chris somehow used his charm to convince Veronica to go take a detour to go and look at the stars and do a little sightseeing before bringing her home. And James complied, and he drove them down a secluded dirt road in the middle of nowhere. I hate these They've done this so many times, hundreds of times before. I know, but I hate these stories because I don't think... Anybody would get in a car with two random dudes that were like, hey, we're going to go out in the middle of nowhere down a dirt road right now. absolutely. These days, everybody would be like, fuck you, no. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But as they, so they parked, they went down the dirt road, they parked. Chris leaned over into the back seat and began kissing 18-year-old Veronica. Not sure if it was consensual. Remember, Chris is very charming. So we're not going to blame her if it was, you know, if she was kissing him willingly. And plus they're about the same age. Yeah, no, He's like, yeah, like three years older than her, four years older at this point. Well, James put the car in park and turned the headlights off and said, I'm going to go for a walk as he had done hundreds of times yeah, before. We do this all the time. Nothing's yeah. different. Do your thing, homie. When James returned back to his vehicle, he saw Chris sitting in the front seat, staring blankly ahead and Veronica was nowhere to be found. When James asked Chris where she was, Chris said, she's in the back on the floor. So James peered over the seat to find Veronica clearly dead with raised red ligature marks around her neck and her wrists. According to James, this was the first time in his 34 years that he had ever seen a dead body and he was not prepared for this. So he panicked and started demanding for Chris to tell him why he killed her. James said that Chris threatened him with a knife, exclaiming that he would absolutely kill him as well if he didn't calm down. James saw that Chris's eyes were lifeless and black, and he was in one of his famous black moods. So he thought it best to pull it together and ask Chris what he wanted to do with Veronica's body. Chris demanded that James get in the car and drive. So the pair drove a ways and dumped Veronica's lifeless body on the ground and covered her with branches just past the little township of Truro, 
which was far enough away from bustling Adelaide. It was a desolate enough area that her body wouldn't be discovered for quite some time. Yeah, two years, apparently. Yep. And they drove away from the dumping ground. Chris, as they were driving away from the dumping ground, Chris coldly informed James that Veronica wasn't the first girl that he had killed, and she's not going to be the last. He warned him that if he were to utter a single word about this to anyone, that Chris would do the same thing to him. But Chris didn't have anything to worry about because although James was inherently a, not a violent person, he would little, literally do anything I was about to say his for Chris. Puppy dog would fucking just follow along, even be an accomplice to his heinous crimes. And their killing spree was just getting started, or escalating rather. Yeah, but say. So Christmas came and went, and James was feeling horribly guilty over the crime that he had witnessed. But he was shocked when they returned to work. When they returned to work, Chris was just perfectly normal, like acting like nothing had happened. Like, how can you just be okay after weird, doing right? that? You know yeah, I mean? like, he's he's like struggling getting himself like living. James is, and Chris like, is like, you're this comfortable with it? You said you've done it before. Like, how much have you fucking done this? Yeah, dude? like this. Chris is, is like not- refreshed and renewed, <laughs> rejuvenated from his activities. In fact, Chris pulled a very classic, what I call abuser move. He rewarded James and he lavished him with his undivided attention and announced that he was ready to move in with him and he had found an apartment for the pair to share. Of course he did because that's he's rewarding him for the good he's behavior. He's rewarding him he like a dog. Shit. He's keeping his mouth shut. He's good, good behavior. He was undoubtedly rewarding James for his efforts and helping Chris commit these crimes. It's gross. But now these two are roommates. Fabulous. What could go wrong? They live together now. It's already weird as it is. <laughs> So it's literally move-in day for Chris and James. So the day that they are moving into their new place. We need to christen the house. And it's one week after Veronica Knight's murder. Just one week. James and Chris were driving around the business district of Adelaide on their way to pick up some of James's belongings from his old apartment to haul to the new place when Chris spotted a girl that he liked, unfortunately. 15-year-old Tanya Kenny. 15. That's Tanya had been staying with friends in Victoria Harbor and had hitchhiked her way back to Adelaide, as was common practice in the 70s. Yeah, we, we've learned that on almost every serial killer that lived in the 70s. Everybody hitchhiked back then. Well, when Chris spotted her, James pulled the car over and he was instructed, as he was instructed, sorry, and Chris got out and used his charms to convince Tanya to accompany them back to James's old apartment to make a load. Uh-huh. I guess to help? Yeah. Like, I'll give you a ride if you help is probably what he said. I don't know. Yeah. To be honest, so God like- only knows what he promised this child and how he lured her. Hey, we'll give you a ride, but yeah, we just need to make a stop. We need you to help us unload some stuff real quick or something. But either way, Chris had James wait in the car while he and Tanya went in- inside James's old apartment to fetch his belongings for oh. him. So he was like, wait here, James. We'll get your stuff. Well, James waited and waited and waited. He waited so long that he finally fell asleep. When he woke up, Chris was outside of his car demanding that he come inside and help him. When James entered his apartment, he found Tanya in one of the empty bedrooms on the floor, still fully clothed with her hands and feet bound with plastic clad wire and a large piece of medical tape over her mouth. The medical tape was completely soaked in blood, and blood was trickling from the teenager's mouth onto the floor, and she was obviously dead. Yeah. After arguing for a bit, 
James and Chris ultimately decided since it was still daylight outside to leave Tanya's body at the apartment stored away in a cupboard because they couldn't haul it. Yeah, you don't want to be carrying yeah, a dead person in the, in the middle, middle of the day. day. That way no one would see them haul a dead body to the car. In the meantime, they drove out, the two of them, to a desolate area called Wingham, located on the northern outskirts of Adelaide, where they spent a few hours digging a shallow grave. Then they drove themselves back into town, now that the sun was setting. They hauled Tanya's body out of the apartment and placed her in the trunk of their car, then returned to the makeshift grave. James would later state that he couldn't bring himself to bury Tanya. So after he helped Chris toss her body into the ground, he sat in the car and smoked cigarettes as Chris shoveled the dirt on top of her. Mm -hmm. He just couldn't do it. You got that far, buddy. I'll give you credit for not shoveling the dirt. You carried the body. The credit stops about there. I know. dug the hole. But I could not. I just couldn't finish putting the dirt back in. I did everything else. Like, shut the fuck up. Shut up. Then the pair drove home where they would spend their first night together in their new apartment as roommates. Wait, Chris in the fucking housewarming. While the life of an innocent 15-year-old girl, their youngest victim. Good. Believe me, lay, good as in like. There's nobody there's, younger. There's nobody younger, yeah. Laying the ground in the middle of nowhere. Their next victim wasn't much older, though. James and Chris ran into 16-year-old Juliet Makita. Juliet came from a really good family. Both of her parents were teachers, and they both felt that they had instilled values in their children that would ultimately keep all of their kids safe. They probably had. Juliet had been working a part-time job at the mall and then taking the bus home in the evening, and she was always, without fail, home by nine. However, on this day, James Miller and Chris Worrell spotted her when they drove past the bus stop. Yep. They pulled over and offered her a ride home. She accepted, slid into the back seat, and promptly thanked the two men and gave them her home address. As they drove, Chris felt that he didn't want to waste any time, so he reached into the glove box and pulled out some rope. He then turned to Juliet and asked for her wrists. At first, she looked at him baffled, like, what? She was very confused. Uh, yeah, as one would be. And he winked at her and told her that she should, quote, try it before she knocks it, meaning bondage, I guess. However, Juliet was 16 and had zero idea of what bond- bondage was. Yeah, I was about to say. So she's, she was so confused. Yeah. She didn't even realize that she had been picked up for any other reason other than to be given a ride home. Yeah, she's 16. Why would she think anything else? James pulled over in a somewhat isolated area and took his usual walk leaving the terrified and confused girl alone with Chris. Up until now, James has stayed out of Chris's business while he murders these innocent girls. He hasn't interfered in any way other than to help dump their bodies. He didn't want the killings to continue. So James cut his walk short and decided to return to the car, Mm -hmm. thinking that Chris would have had plenty of time to have his fun and they could just bring her home. Yeah. And guys, this part is rough, so trigger warning. As James returned to where the car was parked, he witnessed Chris on the ground outside of the vehicle straddling Juliet, sitting on her stomach while strangling her. James grabbed Chris by the shirt and demanded that he get off of her. But James would later say that Chris, without missing a beat, looked at him with dead eyes and said, take your hands off of me or you're next. And that was obviously enough to scare James. Yeah. 
James isn't necessarily the strong-willed type. No, and if you've ever looked into the eyes of someone that's a monster or a mm-hmm. killer or something like that, it's, it's terrifying. It's, yeah, it is it is terrifying. Like you see that there's something wrong there. You're like, no, there's I don't want there. fucking anything to do with that. Yeah. So he unfortunately, James unfortunately, took a step back and let Chris finish killing Juliet. Well, see, what's his choices? Stop the dude and he's he knows that Chris can probably beat his too. ass mm-hmm. and then Chris is going to kill him. I mean, or worse, not like him anymore, or not love him, or not let him be around. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he's just not strong enough. He's not a strong little dude. After the poor girl had died, Chris unleashed his rage on James and verbally abused him while having him help haul Juliet's body to Truro, where they dumped her within walking distance of their first victim, Veronica Knight. Chris would spend the next couple of weeks icing James out as punishment for attempting to interfere with Chris's last murder. Yep. And this had the attended effect on James. It drove him to the edge of absolute madness to be ignored by the love of his life. I won't do that shit again. I'm so sorry. He would no longer ask any questions or complain. He just wanted to make Chris happy. And as far as Juliet's family, when she didn't come home at nine, as she always had before, her father was initially very angry. He thought maybe she just went to spend the night at a friend's house didn't and say didn't anything, say anything. Didn't call. However, when she failed to come home the following day, he called the police. And the police told him not to worry and said, quote, If I had a dollar for every worried parent who called here about a child who hasn't come home, I'd be a wealthy man. Right. This is the 70s. Yeah. So remember this because... It's just really frustrating. Hitchhiking and all these things are so prevalent. We've seen it in how many countless stories we've covered where people are, women, especially women, are hitchhiking all over the areas and getting killed. Young girls. And everyone's running to police and they're like, dude, every fucking time you guys come in here, they show up the next day. Like, we don't, they probably hitchhiked. They probably took a ride somewhere. Maybe they went to Sydney. You know what I mean? Like, they always chalk it up to that shit. No. Unfortunately, it's going to be over two years until the Makita family has any answers as to the whereabouts of their daughter. Yeah. Two well, years. She's buried out there with the, with the first Veronica. victim. She wasn't found for two years. And that brings us to our fourth young victim, 16-year-old Sylvia Pittman. Stop with these kids, man. Mm-hmm. We literally have kids a year or two older than this. Like, it's fucking ridiculous. I know. This one hit. I tried to find out more about Sylvia. However... There just unfortunately was not a lot of information. It was like that with a couple of these girls. And I hate that because I hate knowing things about more about the the killers than I do these these innocent children that were murdered. This is the 70s. So these kids are all born in the late 50s, early 60s, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) They didn't keep detailed files on every human being born. Yeah, that's true. You know what I mean? So only if you popped up in something or popped up in a magazine or. I will say they didn't even graduate high school, so they probably weren't even in yearbooks and shit yet. Veronica Knight, her mentors, her like um not parents, but her the the couple that like yeah. mentored her, they wrote a book about her to keep her memory alive, and I think it's wonderful. Absolutely she, link it below. I forgot to also, mention that earlier. She also would have had more information about her because she was in the in system. In the system, yeah. And she was in her twenties. She was 18. She was, 18. 18. 18? Mm-hmm. She was 18. Okay. But she, but she was in the system. And mm-hmm. the 20 year old, you know, graduated high school, had a job. I mean, there was, there's more life there. Like, I don't think 16 year olds or 15 year olds have at that time. They're anything. babies. I don't even think they have a yearbook. So I don't They're even think there's any kind of anything on them anywhere. Well, Sylvia Pittman, beautiful girl. She was 16 years old. And like I said, tried to find out more about her. There wasn't a lot. But these two 
scum dumpsters were out hunting for girls. Scum dumpsters? <laughs> they were at the Adelaide uh, railway station on the evening of February 6th, 1977, when they spotted. So, yeah, yeah, they clearly are going to public transportation hubs and offering people rides. I think the- they're looking for the girls who have missed their train, who have missed their bus, who have That's missed. But yeah. I'm saying they're, they're going to the they public. Are. They're either the ones that missed it mm-hmm. or are early and are going to have to wait, you know, 30, 40 minutes at the bus stop. And they're like, hey, I can get you home in 10 minutes. One thing about, and you'll be able to see her picture too, but even James would later say that he even thought that Sylvia looked younger than even their youngest victim. She was just a little girl, you know? Yeah, she just was one of the ones that looked, some of them looked, which one makes of ours me, looks like four years younger. Which than makes me is. angry. Like, then why didn't you do something? Yeah, no shit. You know, it just, it makes me really angry. Notice, it, well, they noticed that she had missed her train. Like I said before, they they prey upon the the girls who are needing something. Yeah. So they noticed that they she had missed her train, and Chris Worrell offered her a ride. And she hesitated to accept, but then he convinced her by telling her that her money would be wasted if she paid for another train ticket. And to accept a ride would be the mature thing to do. If you if you if you wait here, you buy another ticket, you waste your money, and then you got to wait a certain amount of time. We can just get you home. The, the responsible thing is to not spend that money. You know what I mean? Like. So she thought about it, and she accepted. This dude's a huge douche pickle. He's horrible. James drove the three of them out to a secluded area around Windang, and parked, and of course got out of the car and took one of his long walks while Chris was left alone with this call her what she is child. Child. No other word for it. When James returned, he saw a very satisfied Chris smoking a cigarette in the passenger seat. In the back seat, 16-year-old Sylvia Pittman lay dead underneath a rug with pantyhose, her own pantyhose, tied tightly around her neck. James would later state that her complexion was purple and that her eyelids were so swollen that her face looked unrecognizable to him. Her face looked like one big bruise. So she had been beaten. Mm. Without uttering a word and just being a good little helper, James drove the pair out to their usual dumping grounds in Truro, where they disposed of Sylvia's body. And James was hoping that since he was being so accommodating this time and not resisting Chris like he had done before in any way, that Chris would soften up to him instead of icing him out. But his compliance this time around didn't seem like enough to impress Chris. So James was going to have to take it a step further. He's got to help him now. If he wanted to earn Chris's love and affection, he was willing to be more than just some accomplice. He was willing to be an enthusiastic participant in this psychopath's escalations. Nice. The day after the murder of 16-year-old Sylvia Pittman, the day, the next day. There's only like, and given the context, right, this is only like two or three week period, but they they're already have four victims. It was like a two-month period that they killed all the girls. All of them. Mm-hmm. But same, at this point, it's only been, it's barely been a But month. this is the next day. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh-huh. Chris and James encountered 26-year-old nurse's aide, Vicki Howell. And James would say that he was extra helpful luring Vicky into their car by playing up his more effeminate mannerisms this time because he wanted to show Chris how supportive he was. Mm-hmm. So he was actually working to attract Vicky into the car. He's using that whole, your guard comes down when the gay guy's talking to you angle. I'm the wingman, yeah. 
And it worked. Vicky felt very comfortable getting into the car with the two men under the guise of going for a drive in the Adelaide Hills to do a little sightseeing. And she had been going through a really rough patch in her personal life ever since she had separated from her husband. So this was a welcome distraction for her. According to James, he drove the three of them out to the middle of nowhere and parked the car. As usual, James went for a walk while Chris slipped into the back seat alongside Vicky. However, this time would be different. During his walk, James started to feel a twinge of jealousy for the women that Chris spent his time with, raping and killing. Yeah. So he decided to turn around, walk back to the car, and participate in some way. In the back seat, James said he could see Chris laying on top of Vicky. At this point, James felt that Vicky was not tied up, but instead a willing participant. We don't know this is James' words. Right. He watched the pair for a bit, just sat and watched creepily. That's not weird. Until Chris looked up and saw him spying on them. Then Chris shouted for him to get the hell out, so he did. And I I guess James felt that watching Chris in the act would show how supportive he was. I don't know gross though it's really weird so james said he took about a 20 minute walk and then when he came back vicky was dead in the backseat under a blanket in a show of support he asked no questions and just drove out to their special dumping grounds in truro to dispose of vicky's lifeless body lovely just two days later so they had a two-day resting period three day span three people the pair went on a drive around adelaide looking for a new victim when they spotted 16-year-old Connie Yordanides, I think is how you say her last name. I think it's the Greek Greek last name, which is super pretty. But I hope I'm saying it right. (laughs) Yordanides. Coming out of a movie theater. She was coming out of a movie theater with her friends. She split off from her friends, and she was going to the bus stop to head home. Of course. That's their thing. They pulled off alongside, they pulled up alongside her, and... With Chris's charm and James's disarming demeanor, she accepted a ride from the two men with with the understanding that they were to take her straight home. Like, you're taking me home. I'm not going anywhere else. I'm not doing anything else. If you guys want to give me a ride, I'm down. Yep. 100%. So she got in and she was all business. The moment she got in, she gave James her parents' address. And so when she saw that he was driving in the opposite direction, she flipped out and she just instantly started to panic, rightfully so. Yeah, you're going the wrong fucking way, dude. According to James, as he drove, Chris hopped from the front passenger seat into the back seat and tried to silence her by clamping his hand over her mouth. But that didn't stop her. She was fighting really hard. And trigger warning, guys, this is disturbing. I'm going to be talking about rape, so I'll give you a second if you want to skip ahead a bit. Somehow, Chris managed to get the teenage girl tied up and down on the floorboards. James pulled the car over in a secluded area outside Wingfield. He considered going for a walk, but in his longing to participate in Chris's sex life, he stood there and masturbated while he watched Chris rape the young girl. Jeez Louise. Not just rape, but torture. Chris would strangle Connie to the point of her blacking out, then he would bring her back too, only to do it again. Chris finally realized that James, what James was doing, and he said, get the hell out. Like, this is my time. Leave. It's like his own. You, yeah, well, that's he that, doesn't want James around. Well, that's his own personal thing. Mm-hmm. That's, we see that so many times with serial killers. Some, part, some piece of it is personal to them, and that's his, his. The killing part is his personal 
So James zipped up his pants and left and for a time. And then when he came back, he said that Connie was dead. Yeah. And per their MO, James drove out to Churro where he helped dispose of Connie's body in a shallow grave. And Chris, although angry that James was trying to get himself off during his crime, was pleased that he was taking an interest. So he got a gold star that day, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I want you around, but good job for <sighs> supporting me. Playing with your dick while I did this. Jesus. It's so fucking weird. I just I mean, you can't even get your head around no, how you can't. No, sick. No sane, normal human being can get their no. head around that. You can't, because that's not fucking sane or normal. Like, I love you. I think you know I would do some shit for you. But I'm you, sorry, bro. You, you do I, some shit for some Oreos. Just, let's be serious. I would not <laughs> condone. Murder and rape? No, thank you. Yeah, no. no. I'm good with that. <laughs> You um, know, yeah. I just, I just, it's just beyond me. But that's me. a normal human being. And by normal, there's no measure of what normal is, unless you're talking about this shit, because this is not normal. Like, I, I appreciate that he wasn't violent, but this, this is, this is not You good. can't appreciate shit, because he could have prevented all seven or eight of these murders. Maybe he the absolutely could have. Maybe the first one he couldn't have, because he didn't know what was going on. I'm glad you said that. That's coming back. But the other seven absolutely could have even not even been there. You know what I mean? So three days... After Connie's horrific murder, Chris introduced James to his new girlfriend. Yes, Chris has a girlfriend. The psychopathic killer has a steady girlfriend now. Probably got her within three days as well. We, we only what? know we only know his girlfriend as Amelia. I mean, I wouldn't want my real name yeah, out there. Yeah, she probably fucking moved real quick and changed her name after this shit came out. <laughs> I'm not going to blame her for not coming forward if that's not her real name. You know, I thought Sorry, he was but. working. I didn't know what he was doing at the time. <laughs> so after introducing James to Amelia, James and Chris went out hunting for girls to kill. Hey, hey, we just killed somebody. Hey, let's go meet my girlfriend. Okay, now we're going to go back to doing what we do. I guess Amelia wasn't the positive influence that we were hoping for. I, I don't know how she would be. She clearly probably know don't know this woman. We just know her first name, but she probably was not, you know, high society. I have no idea. Couldn't tell you. She's shacking up with this dude. After hitting up a few bars, James and Chris spotted 20-year-old Deborah Lamb hitchhiking on Henley Street in Adelaide. And according to Chris and every other serial killer during this time period, hitchhikers were the perfect target. In fact, they're a preferred target. They're easy. Trigger warning here. This one is very rough to me, guys. So I'll give you a minute. <laughs> Deborah slid in the back seat and told the men that she was headed to Port Goller. So off they went. When they arrived at Port Goller, it was nighttime, and James decided to park right on the beach. I guess there's a nice sandy beach there. Okay. According to James's account, Deborah was... Let me re-emphasize this. This is James's account. Right. Yeah, we, okay. They all are. We know that. Deborah was prepared to exchange sex with Chris for the ride. So as she began getting undressed voluntarily in the back seat, James left for his usual walk, leaving Chris alone with the young woman. Not sure if that's true or not. but Probably not true. Yeah. James said when he returned back to the vehicle sometime later, he found Chris packing the last bit of sand down with his foot over the shallow beach grave he had dug for Deborah. James was just grateful not to have to dispose of another body that night. Oh, cool. I didn't have to do any work this time. What James didn't know, but would learn during his trial, however, 
was that when he drove himself and Chris off that beach that night, 20-year-old Deborah Lamb was still alive, bound, and gasping for air beneath the sand. Oh, God. She would have died a long, agonizing, torturous death. That's horrible. Horrible. Buried her alive. Buried her alive. And old boy just thought, it's part of what we do. They found her lungs were completely full of sand. (sighs) Just absolute. And you know that that scum dumpster knew that. that. Oh, yeah. Left her alive and got off on that. Yeah. A couple of days later, Chris and James went out drinking and ran into an old friend, Deborah Skuse. She was the ex-girlfriend of an old co-worker of theirs. In some places I read co-worker. In some places I read that this was a fellow inmate that was in prison with them. So they were more like acquaintances. They knew Deborah, in other words. Yeah, she's not a stranger. Yeah. Well, Deborah, her live-in ex-boyfriend, had left her and taken all of their belongings with him. So she was really down and out that particular evening. She was in tears. She was a mess. Makes her an easy target. Yeah. So... Chris and James were there to comfort her. Of course. They're so charming and so helpful. James even suggested that the three of them take a weekend trip up to Mount Gambier for a little getaway to get Deborah's mind off things. Mm. And Chris agreed, and the trio drove out to their destination the next evening. Okay. And things went well for the first few hours of the getaway. However, Chris had slipped into one of his black moods. And he was looking to rape and kill Deborah. However, James insisted they couldn't because Deborah had told people where she was going that weekend and who she was going with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. You can't do this. There was no way they could get away with it this time. Angry, Chris started drinking early the next morning and throughout the day before they left to head back to Adelaide. Well, we all know that James usually drove, but on this particular day, Chris was in, still in one of his moods, so he insisted that he get behind the wheel. After been drinking all day. Chris started angrily speeding down the mountain roads. Oh, Jesus. Despite Deborah's screams and pleas to slow the car down. In response, Chris sped up, and Deborah began yelling that she didn't want to die. And just as those words came out of her mouth, their tire blew out. They blew a tire. Chris was going way too fast to keep control of the vehicle, so it began to fishtail. With a large truck heading right for the three of them, Chris desperately jerked on the steering wheel, sending them off the side of the road. And their vehicle rolled twice down an embankment, flinging all of the passengers out of the open windows. Oh. Both Chris Worrell and Deborah Skuse were instantly killed. She was their final victim of one of his black moods. Yeah. James Miller spent three weeks recovering from his injuries in the hospital, but he survived. James was released from the hospital just in time to attend his beloved Chris's funeral. Jeez. Now, James was a mess. Like, he didn't care if he lived or died. He just assumed that he died. The story already has a horrible ending because the piece of shit just died. Like, James didn't care about living without Chris. Right. But here he is alive. So... He got out, he went to the funeral, and then he went to a reception after the refu- after the funeral. He walked up to Amelia, remember Chris's mm-hmm. girlfriend? Yep. And he effectively confessed to her that he and Chris had killed a bunch of people. Oh. And I don't know if she didn't believe him or if she just wasn't in the headspace to process it, 
But she instructed James to basically screw off, leave, leave me alone, never talk to me again. Bye. You know? And it would be another year before the murders were ever mentioned again. Wow. But she felt stupid afterwards. Yeah. Oh, he was not fucking joking. Well, just wait. Just wait. So, like I stated in the beginning of this episode, Veronica Knight's remains were discovered first uh, in... They were the first remains discovered in April of the following year, 1978. The police believe that because, you know, teenagers make bad decisions in general, that Veronica must have gone on a hike out in Truro after Christmas shopping. And due to her age and lack of expertise, she must have gotten lost and fallen victim to the elements. Okay. Because, remember, December is hot. It's summer over there. So it's plausible, I guess. I mean, I no, guess. Whatever. Nobody goes shopping and goes, hey, fuck it. I'm going to go for a hike now. Alone. <laughs> like an hour away from here in the, no- in the middle of nowhere by myself and not tell anybody. So police filed her case away and, and forgot about it. In April of the following year, two hikers came across a second skeleton less than one mile away from where Veronica's remains were discovered. Since animals had gotten to the body, Police had to really, really comb the surrounding area to find enough evidence of the young girl's skeleton to make any kind of a positive ID. 100%. Coconut, are you okay back there, girl? She's digging a hole. <laughs> she got to find the perfect spot. She does these, before she lays down, she has to make like 20 circles. She's got to find the perfect spot. <laughs> it's so funny. So it was determined that the remains belong to, we knew this earlier, 16-year-old Sylvia Pittman. Mm -hmm. The discovery of Sylvia's body was enough for police to begin to assume that... Okay, that's two. Well, yeah, to assume that some of the women who had gone missing around the same time as Sylvia and Veronica had, they may have fallen victim to a single murder, a murderer, and maybe a serial murderer. Yeah. Well, they didn't really have those back then. They didn't call it that back then, yeah. However, police were unable to secure the funding to launch a more widespread search of Truro. So major crime detective Bob Giles broke ranks and convinced the local newspapers to offer a $10,000 reward for any information that led to the capture of the murderer. After that... (laughs) (laughs) Old girl, his old girlfriend's going to be like, oh, 10 Gs? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay. After that, a secondary search was conducted in the Truro area. And this search turned up the remains of two more missing women. from, um, And they were from Ted, uh, Ted, Detective Giles' timeline. So yeah. it's starting to kind of really come together, his well, whole. The first victim was found, and then Sylvia was like the sixth or seventh victim. So there's yeah. a whole period of time where these girls are going missing between these two people's disappearances. And so the two girls that were just found um, were 16-year-old Connie Yornides. And 26-year-old Vicky Howell. Yeah, I mean, if you if you think about it, his last two victims, so it's four. their last two victims, yeah. were not killed and dumped there. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, you're right. Sylvia was the last one that was dumped there. Mm-hmm. So the time frame is his their first victim and the last one dumped there. Any girl missing in that time period, you're like, mm, yeah, they could I, be out here. I just think it's really cool how he has a timeline. He's like, okay, I mean, there and there's some girls on his timeline that just went missing that they didn't kill. Well, you have a timeline, but what I'm saying is, you find the first body, you see mm-hmm. that there's a missing persons report for that girl. 
you find the next body and there's another missing person's report. Right. So that develops, you know, your timeline can go farther to the right or left, but yeah. you've got a specific period of wind, period of time where two girls were found dead within a mile of each other. They right. were missing from X date to X date. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy too, because I don't know if I were to put Vicki Howell on, if I were to be making this timeline, if I were to add Vicki Howell to that, because her age is so different. It wouldn't matter to me. The ages are different because you know the whole story. Yeah, that's if true. If you were looking at nothing and you found two bodies and they were both girls that went missing from the same area yeah. and they were found right by each other, I would put I would literally draw a line and have a picture of the first girl or a name and then mm-hmm. I would draw the line continuing and then I'd put another just like a number And that's line. why you were the cop and not me. Yeah, and then I have the other one. Anything in between them that went missing, I'm looking for those girls. Right. Because now I have two dates that two girls went missing similar fates. So now I have a, I have a, I have a period of time that I can search through. So now we have four girls discovered. So with the discovery of the new bodies and the pressure of the local police department to solve these murders as quickly as possible, right? dead bodies, yeah. The 10K reward was up to 30, 30K. And that was a big chunk of change in 1979. That's some, that's, that's some good money in 1970s. And it was enough to get a certain someone talking. Yeah, I figured. Amelia. I figured. Chris Worrell's ex-girlfriend. If you recall... At the reception, after Chris's funeral, James spilled his guts and confessed everything to Amelia. And 30K was just enough money to shake her loyalty to her ex and James Miller. That was the right price. Oh, well, yeah. And it's the time frame probably fits too, right? Because it's right before he died. So police were able. Oh, they were able. Oh, boy, howdy. I need to go to bed. (laughs) They were able. They were able. (laughs) Believe me, the word you are looking for is able. (laughs) I'm done. I'm done. I'm done, son. Able is the word. <sighs> okay, Courtney, pull it together. You gotta stop drinking that cheap ass prosecco. That's what it is. <laughs> no, unfortunately, that's not it. <gasps> oh my gosh, it's been a week. Police were able <laughs> to track down Miller and take him into custody. He was in living out of his car. He got evicted from him and Chris's apartment. Well, yeah. He was just a mess. Oh, he's wallowing in his own sorrow. Yeah. So they brought him in, and in an interrogation room, a detective presented Miller with a signed statement from Amelia. James admitted to knowing her and knowing of Chris, but other than being acquainted with them, he didn't know anything else. Was it? Okay. And he kept that resolve for hours. Like, that was his stance. Okay. Unwavering. Oh, I'm sure. After six hours of relentless questioning, the detective laid out photos of all the girls. Yeah, all the girls. His, you want to see his reaction. Mm-hmm. And um, put it all, all their pictures in front of James. And after, not instantly, but after a while, right before the detective got up to walk out, James broke down, like a complete mental breakdown, crying, well, spilled his guts. And that's that's a very common tactic, right? You, He's giving you a story. You know it's opposite of the story you've already gotten. With somebody that has nothing to gain mm-hmm. other than some money, right? You do those things. You put all the, you don't just flash the pictures at them, right? One, you don't just flash them at them because they can, you know, ignore it or look away or not not pay attention to it. You put it in front of them to where they cannot get, they can't avoid it, and then you just watch. They're just looking at you. You don't you don't even need a verbal response. You're looking yeah. for you're looking for non uh, nonverbal cues, right? What would the normal person do when presented with these photos? I would start crying as are soon they, as I saw missing dead girls. Are they are they the girls' pictures from when they went missing or are they from are they the bodies? No, they were the girls' picture from when they went right. missing. So to a normal human being, you'd be like, Who are these people? 
Yeah. Like, what is this? But if they told me that these were the dead girl, I would start crying. But I'm even then, you're person. not going to, you're going to have a different reaction than someone who knows who they are. Right? Yeah. He probably stared at him or looked away, averted his eyes. Or couldn't look at him. Or- right. Because if you can't look at him, they're just pictures of girls. Like, what? Who? what is this? Why can't you look at it? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I would pick him up and be like, who is it? You know, who, who are, are they? Who are There'd they? There'd be some sort of normal logical reaction. Yeah. So the police are looking for anything but that. Yeah. Well, after breaking down and confessing, uh, he told the detective, quote, there are three more of them. I'll show you where to find them. <laughs> so the police found four. And he's like, yeah, there's more. Yeah, there's three more plus the ones that died in the car accident. So despite it being 10 p.m. and dark outside, James Miller led the police to the makeshift graves of Juliet Makita, Tanya Kenny, and Deborah Lamb. All seven of the young women had been discovered, and James Miller was officially charged with seven counts of murder. I don't know Australia law. I don't know how they could charge him with murder. Well, well, they we'll, think we'll get he into did that. it. We'll, you know what I mean? We'll get into that. Okay. Miller's trial would take place in February of 1980, and he pled not guilty to all seven counts, and his defense team basically painted Miller to be a victim of Chris Worrell's. Yeah, well, they're just trying to get him accessory instead of actual, you know, the murder charge is going to carry way more of a penalty than accessory to murder. Just as much of a victim as the seven girls had been. Oh, well, I mean, he kind of was. I'm not, I, I'm I, don't, not I don't agree with the, that. I'm I think not comparing him to the seven girls. He's not a good guy, but he was very much a victim of this dude. And to be honest, the jury was actually starting to show sympathy and agreeing with you, Pat, for we're starting to show sympathy for him. I don't have sympathy for him. I'm just saying Until I agree that he was a victim. he took the stand. When asked if he would have ever turned Chris in for murder, James answered, and I quote, if Chris was still alive and he was still out killing girls every night, I would still be out there driving him and not saying a word. I would never betray Chris. Yeah, that's that's going to put a dagger in your, in your defense, and so is um, when you testify that you were in the front seat, masturbating while he was doing these things. You know what I mean? I think that, yeah, I think that, that, that definitely sealed his fate. <laughs> you can't use those things and be like, I didn't know what was going on. I was a victim. No, you clearly weren't a victim, but you were a victim. You know what I mean? The jury only deliberated less than an hour <laughs> before finding James Fuck. guilty of six counts of murder, all except for Veronica Knight, the, the first word. one that you said, I can see. He how, didn't know anything yeah. about it. The jury felt that Miller genuinely had no idea that his best friend had intended to murder her up until the point that he returned to the vehicle and found her body. And as a result, Miller was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences. And um, as Ryan Green says, quote, he was convicted of the murders on the basis that he was part of a joint criminal enterprise a law that was more commonly used to punish members of the organized crime syndicates that had begun to infiltrate the larger cities. So it was like what it, you had it's, said it's earlier. literally like RICO. The RICO so that the we US have here. The the same thing where it was like, hey, you can be connected to a murder if we can prove that there's organized crime involved. Basically. Yeah. We, we can tie a whole bunch of shit to you yeah. because of your involvement with the organization. So to answer your previous question, how was he charged with mur- right, not right, accessory right, right, right. or anything? It was because they oh, charged that makes them sense. like a, I mean, it's an a enterprise. Person. I guess. I guess it's any, a two-person enterprise. I guess more than one can be an enterprise. Yeah, which I'm not mad at that. I don't know about you, but no, he he. I'm not mad at that. He absolutely deserves 
to be charged with murder. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's he a piece a, of shit. I think the, he's a weak ass piece of shit. I think in the beginning, especially the first one, he was not complicit. He had no idea what was going on. I agree with and that. And as time grew on, he became more and more involved and more and more complicit. You can't argue to me that you were just the driver and you didn't have anything to do with it when you're literally rubbing one out in the front seat while it's happening. You know what I mean? Besides the fact that it's disgusting, you're complicit in it at this point. You're now also luring girls into the car using, you know, the feminist. The moment that you and you can't tell me that in any of before Chris started killing in any of his escapades, you know, that there wasn't like a few more rapes involved. No. You there can't tell was. me that. But this is like you said. A lot of it was James's account, right? So a lot yeah. of those sex acts, and he walked away from all of them too. Yeah. He walked away from all of them. So he well, never, according to him, according to him, so he never really knew what was going on there. And it's just well, Miller. If he, they had, if, if, if like I'll just continue, but it's just to prove no, that ahead. point is like if you can't believe this dude didn't have any involvement, and in he can't, he can sit there and say, "I just drove. I didn't know." Well, you dug the fucking graves. That's the that's a killer to me, right? If you touch the bodies to put them in a grave after. Right. If you just, if you were just like, fuck, let's get out of here and got in the car and drove off. I would be more apt to say, yeah, you shouldn't be charged with murder. The second you pick up one body and dig a grave and bury it. Yeah. You're getting, you should be charged with everything because you're. I didn't add all this in because it didn't really make a difference to the story, but he was just floored that people thought that he was guilty. So much so that he spent because he didn't do up until the two thousands trying to fight for his freedom because he was an accessory. He wasn't an actual murderer. I mean, he was manipulated and was a victim. It's it's you see it. Well, yeah. Well, he continually fought for his own freedom while behind bars. Like I said, and oddly enough, he was in the exact same prison that he had met his soulmate Chris Worrell at Utala. Yeah, Yeah. I don't think there's too many prisons in, in Australia. He actually wrote a few memoirs and had garnered quite a bit of public support up until he made the mistake to do a live TV interview. In this interview, Miller stated, quote, Chris Worrell was my best friend in the world. If he had lived, maybe 70 would have been killed and I would have never, ever dobbed him. And I guess that dobbed is like uh, ratted out or something. Yeah, Our I version mean, of ratted out. I don't know. And, but no one's going to support that. You know, Chris is no, Chris you're literally is a piece of shit, James. You're literally telling the world <laughs> that I don't give a fuck how many people he raped and murdered. I was going to keep helping him. So regardless, James was never a free man again. It is kind of interesting. I didn't add this all into my notes because I just, I don't know. I just felt like you needed the basic part of the story. Yeah, you know, I didn't want to waste a lot of time. And it's a lot of story to tell because there's six, seven, eight murders. However, two, two murderers. That's a lot he of story. finally did get a parole date of 2014. Oh. So in 2014, he would have been able to be paroled, which is like. Baffling. Baffling. However, he passed away in 2008. Okay. Just shy. It was during a routine checkup in the prison hospital that it was discovered that Miller was suffering from hepatitis C and probably had been his entire adult life. I mean, it's a very. It's crazy. He didn't know that, though. I'm pretty sure. That, uh, if you from, look at him, he looks very. Here, let me pull up a picture. There's a picture of them. That's Chris Worrell on the left, and then he's on the right. James Miller. So you can tell me what you think of him. Ooh. It's such a stu- I made a weird noise. James a- Miller, if I guess he's 34 there, but he looks 
like way older than us. He looks like 55 minimum. Yeah, he does. But look how young Chris looks. And he's this sicko psycho. Well, he was young. Ugh. He's only 20. Ridiculous. So in a follow-up, he was receiving treatment for hep C in prison. And in a follow-up visit in the early 2000s, it was determined that James was suffering from prostate cancer as well. Oh, lovely. The cancer would later spread to his lungs. So he received treatment for it. Apparently, the Australian prison system has top-notch medical care. Actually, ours does too. Oh, that's wonderful. We <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? By the way, they're required to treat you. <laughs> no, I stuff. know, but... It, On the taxpayer's dollar. It's crazy. But the cancer would later spread to his lungs, and that was after he received chemo for it being in his prostate. Yeah, yeah. And he thought he was in remission. It went to his lungs. And... um. He passed away in a hospice center in 2008. Oddly enough, not from the cancer, but from liver failure. Well, that's hepatitis. Yeah. Hepatitis attacks liver. Yeah. And all the while remaining loyal to Chris Whirl up until the bitter end. He was excited to go be with him on the other side. So Hell? Yeah. Or whatever you believe the bad place is? Satan's hot tub. Ugh. I, I mean, there you go. That's Chris Whirl and James Miller. It's a piece of shit and an even bigger piece of shit. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I always laugh when we talk about stories or prisons in Australia because the only thing that ever pops into my head, this is such a random thought. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about it a minute ago and it's like bothering me. Mm-hmm. It's so ironic to me when they have prisons in Australia. You have prisons in a prison colony. So the prisoners that they sent there, obviously it's not a prison colony anymore. Oh, the British. The British <laughs> sent everybody to Australia as a prison colony. So to, to me, it's like, oh, you were a prison colony that has prisons now. Like, it's ironic. It's Patrick's brain. It doesn't work right. Yeah, that's why. I wanted to also divert away from this fucked up ass story that I did not need today. You didn't? I needed it. I don't ever need these. <laughs> Have you? Um, I'm just saying. I just would like to draw some attention to the fact that I said Truro the right way the whole way through. And I've been practicing that damn, like I had Google speech on. For like a week in the car going, Truro, Truro, Truro. It's a little bit of a tongue twister. Truro. Say it. Truro. T-R-U-R-O. Truro. 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 It's crazy. It's not hard to say. It is a bit of a tongue twister if you're- How wonderful for you. I mean, not everyone's as talented. You're really not, but you're cute. Damn. (laughs) You're cute. I'll take that. And we didn't have to go, nar once. Nar. I thought you were going to do your accent the whole time. I've been waiting on it. Nar. It was not one nar. Nar. I want to be respectful. So. You always are. Thank you. I, not so much, but you always are. It's your episode next week, eh? <laughs> <laughs> That's Canadian. I'm like, why are we in Canada now? Maple syrup, eh? <laughs> we're just offending all of our friends that are podcasters from other countries. We got friends in Canada. We got friends in Australia. I've offended. We're like, just a, we're just 12 a, countries. We're just offending them all right now. <laughs> so is it your episode next week? It is my episode next week. Okay. You get a break from the awful. I'm working on a big case. So. Make me do the awful for a little bit. <laughs> and then, yeah, we give a little episode. We have a little fun. We uh, Let me tell a story while you take a little bit of a week break, week off. You get to sit in the fun seat over here where you just talk shit the whole time. The fun seat? <laughs> the fun seat. You just get to talk shit over here. <laughs> okay. Anyways. We will see you back here same time next week for a patisode. Yep. We love you. Be good to each other. Make good decisions. And 
We'll see you next time. Bye.